In Matthew chapter 22, we're told that the Pharisees got together and they chose an expert in the law to test Jesus. The question he asked Jesus had to do with the greatest commandment or possibly which kind of commandment. The scribes declared that there were 248 positive, affirmative precepts. As many as what they believed at that time to be the members of the body. They also believed that there were 365 negative precepts. 365? A thou shalt not basically for every day of the year. Interestingly, if you add those two numbers up, the total is 613 and that didn't go by their attention because that was actually the number of letters in their copies of the Decalogue, the passage surrounding the Ten Commandments. Of these, they called some light and some heavy. And they were constantly in debate. Some thought that the law about the fringes on the garments was the greatest. Some thought that it was the omission of washings that was as bad as homicide. And then there were others who believed that, no, it was not either of those, but it was taking the name of God in vain that was the greatest commandment and most important. The debate was ongoing in Jesus' day. And so there was a sense in which not only were they testing Jesus, but they were trying to get Jesus to declare whose side he was on in the argument. And it was in view of this kind of distinction that the scribe asked the question, not as much simply desiring a declaration as to which commandment was the greatest, but wanting to know the principle upon which a commandment was to be regarded as great or heavy. And Jesus' response as to which of the commandments would have been at the top of the list was to quote Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. And that would have been startling to Jesus' hearers. And I think it should be something that causes us to stop and take notice. Jesus made a connection between the commandment to love God, the great Shema in the Jewish tradition, and a command to love one's neighbor. And not only that, it's important for us to realize that essentially he made the command to love our neighbors equally heavy with our command to love God. Notice that he said, a second is like it. Showing just how close he believes they're connected. And I think that's probably why the Apostle John, the one that was designated or self-designated himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved, would write, Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And listen to this. This is what John says. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And don't think that Paul didn't understand the importance of love. Most of us, and a lot of non-church people, by the way, because of how it's used in weddings, are familiar with the great 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Not only does it define love, but it also demonstrates its importance. Doing so by closing with the words. So now, faith, that's a biggie, isn't it? Hope, that's a biggie. And love, abide. But the greatest of these is love. Now I didn't point it out then, but our text last Sunday, Romans 13, 1-8, speaking of our relationship to the governing authorities, is actually bracketed Uh, It's what is referred to as an inclusio by two verses, chapter 12, verse 20, and then the last verse of chapter 12, and then chapter 13, verse 9, the first verse of our text for today. Each of these two verses containing a love command. Chapter 12, 20, it ends with the love, uh, the command for us to love our enemy. That's right. Love our enemy. And Our chapter today begins with the command to love our neighbor. And the fact that the state is charged with the administration of justice is in no way incompatible with our obligation to love. In fact, maybe our relationship to governing authorities needs to be readdressed as more than just duty. Three times in our text for today, The text that Mary Jane read at the beginning, and I'm going to read again in just a minute. Uh, Only three verses, three times Paul writes of our need to love our neighbors. And if you'll recall, one of the greatest parables, the parable of of the Good Samaritan, was an answer to, well, just who is our neighbor? He was hoping Jesus would say something that would puff him up and make him feel better. But what did Jesus say? Your neighbor is the person that you hate the most. Those ugly, nasty Samaritans. In fact, the people hearing Jesus tell the story, when Jesus said, so who's the neighbor? They couldn't even say Samaritan. Go back and read it. They said, well, the one that gave aid. One of the most prolific writers uh, mentions that we are compelled to understand when our motivation, when the guiding force is to be love, and when, on the other hand, the primary concern might be simply duty. And another writer, a person you know of, who's written a lot also, a person known as Anonymous, um, here's what Anonymous wrote. Duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do things beautifully. You see, we all recognize that there's a difference. We understand that we're to distinguish between how 
we respond if and when our motivation is simply duty as opposed to those times when we're compelled by love. And that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 felt the need to remind bond servants, which is actually a good word for employees today, to remind them that their obedience to their earthly bosses, their earthly masters, should be with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service. That's not always easy, is it, in the shop? At the place of business, the person that's your supervisor? Say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat you like I would if you were Jesus. And then you say, and Lord help me. <laughs> so, so here's those verses again. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Isn't, isn't that exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13? Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. May God add his blessing to our reading, not once but twice today, of his word. With verse 8, Paul turns from the ministry of the state through the principle of governing representatives to the duties of individual Christian people, you and I. Particularly, our responsibility to love, which he sets up for us as, first of all, an unpaid debt. Now Paul's already referred several times to the importance of paying our debts. In the very first chapter we're told that we are in debt, you and I, all of us, are in debt to the unbelieving world. And we're to be sharing the gospel with those people. Chapter 1 verse 14. Later we're told that we're in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. Chapter 8 verse 12 and following. And we just saw how we are in debt to the state to pay our taxes last week, chapter 13. You see, it's, in fact, I think it's this reference to the debt that forms the tr transmission, transition uh, between verse 7 and verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding. You know, Paul, what Paul is saying is, is that there shouldn't be anything that we owe anybody except the continuing debt to love. Which is to say that we are to be conscientious of, in paying our bills and meeting our tax demands. And I think it bears noting, because of other things Jesus said, we need to be counting the cost before we enter into a mortgage or into hiring an employee or even purchase, a purchasing arrangement. As Christians, we will want to make certain, as Jesus said, that we can manage the agreed repayments punctually. I mean, count the cost? Isn't that what he said before you do something? But there is one debt that will always remain outstanding because we can never pay it. And that's our duty to love. 
John will write, we love because he first loved us. We can never stop loving. We can never stop loving somebody. Uh, I've had it said to me, and I said, no, no, can't go there. I've had it said to me, I, I've loved that person enough. Ready to give up. Ready to move on. And it's sometimes pointed out that the words that are translated here in this passage, except, can also be translated only. And then the sentence would literally read, Oh, nobody, anything, only love one another. Now listen to me. This is a must. We must love our neighbor. Even though we will always fall short of the love required of us. I like the way J.B. Phillips in his little translation puts it. He says, we have a perpetual debt of love that will always remain. Why? Why is that so? Paul goes on to point out that it's because love is the fulfillment of the law. That's why Paul continues, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And these two sentences of verse 8, the two halves that we have, uh, are a striking contrast really. If we love our neighbor, at least in the sense of not doing him or her any harm, we may be said to have fulfilled the law even though we haven't fully paid our debt. And I think we need to read Paul's statement of having fulfilled, not having fulfilled the law against the background of chapter 7 in which he argued, if you'll recall, that we are not capable by ourselves on account of our fallen sinful nature. But, I promise you, go look in Scripture. You find that I'm wrong, please come back and point it out to me. We can never say, the devil made me do it. That's not Scripture. We can't excuse ourselves because of our fallen nature. Because when we become Christians, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to guide us and to help us. And the Scripture says we're never going to face a situation that He hasn't provided the necessary tools for us to handle the situation. Now, you can't leave those tools in the toolbox, can you? Marty, you're a craftsman. Work on projects. You get somewhere and, and the wood needs cut. Does it do you any good to have left the saw back in the truck or in the toolbox? No. Not at all. And I promise you, there are a lot of tools right here to help you live daily, but you can't leave them in here. You've got to move them from here to here. And you've got to allow them, once you've moved them from here to here, to allow them to connect from here to here. It's the fulfillment of the law. And God has rescued us both from the condemnation of the law through the death of His Son and from the bondage of the law by the power of the indwelling Spirit. 
So now Paul has repeated in chapter 13 his statement about our fulfilling the law, but he changes his emphasis from the means of fulfillment, which is the Holy Spirit, to the nature of our fulfilling it, which is love. Love. And you know, love and law are not incompatible. I used to think they were. I used to wonder how my dad could say as he was applying five fingers of instruction to some point on my body, I had a hard time understanding what he meant when he said, well, this is hurting me more than it is you. Until I became a father. And I pray to God that my children never saw what I was doing as punishment, but always as discipline that came from my love for them. And at times, some of the hardest things that I did was to say no and to administer discipline. Love needs law for its direction and law needs love for its inspiration. So Paul's next step is to explain how it is that neighbor love fulfills the law. He says that it's a love that doesn't do any harm to its neighbor. He quotes the prohibitions of the second table of the law. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. But notice, the list isn't complete. There is no list of commandments or sins anywhere in the Bible that has all of them. You have to go about. That's why right after he gave the ten words, God gave the rest of the book of Deuteronomy to Moses, which contained hundreds more. And that's why Paul can say here, and whatever other commandment there may be. Declaring that they're all summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. But how can he say, what is there about love that sums up all of the commandments? And again, it's because love doesn't do any harm. Certainly, the last five sins forbidden in the Ten Commandments harm people. Murder robs them of their life. Adultery of their home and honor. Theft of their property. You know, one of the hardest ones is explaining to young people how fornication, how sex outside of marriage robs their future marriage partner. They certainly do harm. And the word that he uses there is an interesting word. You know what a cacophony is? That's a word I used to hear all the time. Because I had a grandmother who just loved to say, oh, this is just a cacophony. 
It's something that is evil. Chaos. And the Greek word is kakos. That's what cacophony is built off of. And that's the word that Paul uses here. You see, whereas the essence to love is to seek and serve the neighbor's highest good, the problem is, is that we so get, often get caught up in the evil. I'm going to hurry on. You know, Jesus spoke of the first commandment without mentioning a third. Partly because agape is selfless love which cannot be turned in on the self. I've often heard people say, and, and i got to admit, I, I've done it once or twice myself, and, and there's a part of it that's true. When the Bible says you need to love others as you love yourself, there is a true sense in which we have to have a positive, loving affirmation of ourselves before we can really love other people. But that love that we have of ourselves is not to be a self-centered emotion. Yes, we are to affirm all about ourselves which stems from the goodness of creation. But we cannot deny all about ourselves that stems from our evil human nature. And that's, that's been a problem in the past, hasn't it? Haven't we read over the last couple decades of people putting themselves up to be good, perfect examples and leaders to only find out that they are fallen and human just like we are? And when the, while the, what the second commandment requires is that we love our neighbors as much as we do, in fact, <coughs> sinners as we are, love ourselves. I, I like what John Stott says. He says this means that we will love them with a love as real and sincere as our sinful self-love about the reality and sincerity of which there is no shadow of a doubt. Again, listen to me, please. If, if then we truly love our neighbors, we're going to seek their good, not their harm. And in doing so, we will fulfill the law, even though we'll never completely discharge our debt. So here's my challenge. My challenge for us this morning is to figure out ways this week that we as a church and as individuals can truly love our neighbors by seeking their good, not their harm. Therefore, fulfilling the law. I don't know that I was ever any more discouraged by a person that I had looked up to both in terms of him as a Christian and as a businessman. Then when I heard him say, five words. One little statement. 
speaking about something he did in business. I stuck it to them. And my opinion of him as a businessman and as a Christian leader plummeted. Because there has to be a way that we can serve others and meet our needs without sticking it to them. Love. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today so thankful that you have blessed us in so many ways and so sorry that we have failed you in so many ways. Help us to study your word so that we can be all that you have called us to be. And help us to live our lives sacrificially serving others, knowing that you will provide all that we need and that everything is yours anyway. Bless us and use us through this week. Bless us as we sing our hymn of commitment. Help us to sing the words with meaning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.